Welcome to All Things Beer, a Pat's Pints Mark's Mugs podcast. I'm Pat Woodward. And I'm Mark Richards. Each month, we are joined by brewers, enthusiasts, and friends to explore the techniques, the culture, and the history of mankind's best invention. So grab a beer and join us as we discover a world of all things beer. We are back from summer vacation for another episode of the All Things Beer podcast. Luckily, there were some homebrews brewed over this busy summer. Yeah, so we thought we might talk about homebrewing on this episode, and so we've invited our friends and frequent guests of the show, Chris Mercerhill. How you doing, everybody? And Hans Gorsuch. Glad to be here. I thought we'd get started with one of my own homebrews, and this is uh, a Hefeweizen. The head on this beer is unbelievable. Like a lemon pie with just a cloud on top. Meringue. That's the word. I couldn't find it. I knew it was there. It's Yeah, it's amazing. It's sticking around forever. This is nice. It's got a nice bright citrusy profile, a little bit of clove, and not too heavy on the banana, which I'm kind of okay with. I get it in the nose, but yeah, it's not hitting you over the head. Well, I think when you brew a Hefeweizen, you're trying to balance three things. You're trying to get the weediness of the malts, and then you want the clove and the banana and for my sensibility, you don't want any one of those three to dominate the other two. I'd still rather be heavier on the clove and lighter on the banana. Banana for me is one of those things where once someone points it out to you, it's like that's all you see. You know what I mean? Remember the first couple half of Ices I ever had, someone was like, do you get the banana? And then I was like, yeah, that's all I get now. Thanks. Thanks for pointing <laughs> that out. I lean more on the clove side, but this is really nice. I think it's it's not super clovey. I'm really having a hard time finding the banana, so for me, that's the sweet spot. I think Hans said it right, that you get a little banana in the nose, but not uh, a lot on the taste. This is not the first time you've brewed this specific beer. This is the second time. I, I made it last year. Were there differences in the recipe or process? A few. This year's version is not as strong. This is only 4.5%, which is sort of on the low end for mm-hmm. a And Last year was about 5%. This beer is made with centennial hops that I grew here in the yard. Last year, I added about five ounces of fresh-picked hops. This year is about 13 ounces. I can't say that I could pick out the hops in this beer. Can you guys get any hop character? It's pretty hard, I would say. I think there is a little bit of bitterness there. Perhaps, yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's not an IPA, but I think there's a little more bitterness than last time. And then, then I think other half of Ices. I think that might be fair. Hefeweizen is normally very low IBU. You never really know exactly what you're going to get out of the hops that you grew. Sure. Those centennials went in, you know, in Whirlpool. Okay. Um, but I did mm. use some German hops for uh, bittering, you know, as maybe targeting 15 IBU. Mm-hmm. What was your mash process on this, Pat? So a double decoction mash. Malt bill, for what it's worth, is uh, 60% malted white wheat and then 40% of pale ale malts from our friend Matt Cunningham at uh, Rustic Brew Farms. And then I do a rest at about 115 Fahrenheit called a ferulic acid rest. And the idea of that, there's an enzyme that breaks down the barley in such a way that the yeast can later make the clove character. So if you want to accentuate the cloves, you do that uh, low-temperature mash. Decoction, bring it up to about 145 uh, let it rest for another, you know, say, half an hour, and then another decoction to bring it up to you know, 154 or so. 
So it, it's a little bit of a, of a longer brew day than a normal just infusion mash, but I think it's worth it. Oh, yeah. Very refreshing beer, too. What was the yeast you used? You did Omega, right? I used the Omega Hefeweizen yeast. Um, I can't remember the number, but it's their standard. I did a starter this year, which is different from last year. And I don't know that I taste a lot of difference, but I can tell you last year, like the fermentation didn't really start until about 36 hours after pitch. Really? Which, which made me nervous. Uh, yeah, that's every homebrewer's nightmare. Yeah, sure. Sitting there waiting for that yeast to finally kick in. Whereas with this one, like the next morning it was bubbling. And speaking of bubbling, I think you've got the carbonation dialed in. Well, I think that's really critical. And I, I do think that a lot of Hefeweizens you might get locally, one of the things is I think they would be better if they were more carbonated. And I get it that sometimes that's hard to control the carbonation on a draft system where you're pouring uh, a dozen beers and, or even in the bottle. And we should mention you did keg this beer. This, this is, is a, a keg beer. beer. Yeah. Hefeweizen is a beer that's, you know, you want to drink it fresh. You know, you want to prevent oxidation, so this is you know, straight into the keg. And what's the pressure on your keg? To pressurize this one, I'm running it at about 18 psi, and uh, you know, temperature is about 36 in there. So I'm shooting for 3.2 volume CO2, something like that. 18's not insignificant. Yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah. But you, you know, when you have a really effervescent beer, it just makes it lighter, lightens the body, and that's what kind of what you want with this beer, right? Sure. To talk about the fermentation schedule and, you know, the banana versus clove. So the general thinking is that if you ferment at a lower temperature, you'll get more clove and less banana. I ferment this one in the chest freezer set at about 68. Last time I went a little colder. This time I started at 66 and, you know, probably went up to about 71 just from the heat of the fermentation. But I also, after it got going, I took the airlock out and did open fermentation. Oh, really? And hmm. I just put a piece of aluminum foil over there. Because actually in Germany, almost all the Hefeweizens are brewed open fermentation, so the CO2 doesn't build up. Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of opinions in professional brewing, uh, some circles, about back pressure and how that affects the yeast's process. From what you read, it makes a difference. Although I have to say, you know, I think all of you tried my Hefeweizen last year, and I didn't do this last year. I don't know that I can taste a real obvious difference. Sure, sure. You made two or three changes, so how would we pinpoint one or the other? But these three changes are good. This is a good beer. This is definitely a ride home from work in the 88-degree uh, muggy Ohio summertime day. And, uh, yeah, this it'd be real easy to knock one or two of these down. Yeah, it's a crusher. Yeah, I love this beer. I helped you last year kill that keg because i wanted to drink that till it was gone it was excellent last year as well and as you are fond of saying hans i mean just when you put it in the glass and you've got that big meringue like head and you've got that very pale hazy it it just just looks looks right right. yeah there's something to be said for how it looks in the glass and that's also something i appreciate about drinking a full glass of different styles of beer your impression of the thing is different than little tasters you know yeah, but it looks great in that big bowl shaped. It's just a sexy beer is what it is. Like when you put it in, in the glass, because it's a curvy glass, it's the right glass. Oh. And it's got that voluminous, you know, rocking white head at the top. Like it's it's a good looking beer when it's poured in that glass. Hans getting worked up over the house. That's what I'm saying. We might have to give Hans some privacy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's true, though. Those nice tall glasses, you guys have those... That's probably, what, a 10, 12-inch tall glass? Those, like a half yard, those big, curvy glasses. I mm-hmm. mean, there's your half of Eisen. A yard of half of Eisen? Yeah, I could probably. 
could probably figure out a way to get through a yard of half of ice in. Oh, yeah. We can actually make that happen. Mark's got a couple half-yard classes in his basement right now. Yeah, thanks to my friend Justin. We will have to we'll have to work through those one day. I don't know that Hefeweizen is the beer for it. While we're talking about Hefeweizen, since 2017, the gold medal winning Hefeweizen at the Great American Beer Fest has four times come from Ohio. Four different Ohio brewed Hefeweizens. Ohio is the birthplace of Hefeweizen, so it makes sense. <laughs> it's, uh, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> maybe the rebirth of Hefeweizen. Fair. There you go. Interestingly, all from northern Ohio, which is uh, somewhat less known for its uh, Germanic connections than the southern Ohio, right? What are the breweries that might be in that group? So this year, the gold medal went to JAFB in Worcester for their Hefeweizen, and it was a pretty competitive category. I think there were over 200 entries this year. Okay, now that's up in Worcester. What's that acronym stand for? Well, it's a kid-friendly podcast, but it's just another brewery. I, I didn't blank. even know kids listen to this. <laughs> Fill in the blank. That's right. <laughs> My well, kids I don't know. can't get enough. Last year, Fathead's Gogglefogger, Hefeweizen, was a gold medal winner. In 2019, Prosperity Wheat from Market Garden was uh, a gold medal winner. And then in 2017, Fatheads again, but with a different beer called Alpenglow, won the gold medal. Oh, interesting. Fatheads does some exceptional things. Like, I don't drink enough of their, like, it's not in my rotation, but, like, they do exceptional things when they put their minds to it, I feel like. Oh, yeah. Gogglefogger's a good one, for sure. Speaking of Fatheads, though, this is the first time since, I think, 2009 when they opened that they did not win a medal at the GABF. But it's been an amazing streak. It's a pretty good run, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But JAFB, the brewery in Worcester, actually, in addition to the gold medal in the Hefeweizen, they won a silver in American IPA, which had over 400 entries. Wow, sure. So that's pretty impressive stuff. Well, Ohio's on the map. And in central Ohio here, we actually had three different breweries won medals at the GABF, which I think is the most ever. We had Wolf's Ridge with Daybreak. This is the third year in a row it's medaled. I believe it was a silver medal this year in the coffee beer category. You had Gimut with the Golem Czech Pills. Oh, yeah. Which, Great uh, pills. I've had that recently. It is excellent. Well, I think that's the bronze in the German Pilsner category. Okay. Which was also a very competitive category. So, you know, Gimut is making some some really nice beers, and I was excited to see them take home that hardware. Probably my favorite place to grab a beer in town here. Oh, beautiful beer garden, lovely German-themed beers. Yeah, I love that place. If you haven't been, check them out. And the third medal was to Brew Brothers at the Racino, right. Scioto Downs, right? That's right. Despite their location... That's really cool that they won an award. Great guys over there. Yeah, I mean, uh, shout out to Ryan Torres, the brewmaster there, who I know through Sods. They won a bronze medal for a beer called Toasty in the British mild or bitter category. I'd like to try that beer. I would too. Not that many breweries will brew that style. Like, that's not a thing you see on the board very much. And done right, man. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's hard to find a good bitter uh, around, and not not very many places try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And as much as we don't have to travel far or uh, out of our normal footsteps to go to Gamute, maybe we should make a road trip out Route 23 and check this place out. Oh, I'm down. We could do that. We could I've do both been. on the same trip. 
I've never been. I'd, I'm down. Let's go check it out. Easy, Pat. That's the magic number. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're still less than three. That's true. Well, next we're going to turn to our friend Chris Mercerhill, who's going to share his fistful of lemon saisons. I'm in. Let's do it. Let's pour them out. Tell us about the Ooh. beer. This is, as I said, called Fistful of Lemons. Yeah, Why do you call it? Is the it aroma be slamming. It's not subtle. So this is the second time I brewed this beer. Uh, happy to say the first keg went pretty quick. I didn't feel like it was lemony enough. I had more adjuncts this time. So part of my thinking, it's a Saison recipe. It's 10 pounds Pilsner malt, 2 pounds wheat malt. And the idea is to get a lemony beer without adding lemons. So I have a little micro farm is too strong. Nano farm in my backyard. You Pico do. farm. You do. Yeah. It's I'm beginning to wonder if Pico that's a nano. nano farm anymore. That could be, that's getting bigger. <laughs> All right. So it's not a Pico farm. It's definitely at least a nano farm. I think so. So it's an aquaponic farm. So it's hydroponic with aquaculture. So there's fish. So I feed fish in a pond. I pump the water up through pipes. Plants sit in the pipes. They grow in there. No soil just based on the effluence of the fish feeds the plants. And it's a nice little system I've been working on for about five years now. And I grow a lot of herbs. And so this year I grew herbs with the intention of finding lemony herbs to add to a beer. So can I make a lemony saison without actual lemons? So this beer contains lemon balm, lemon basil, lemon verbena, lemon thyme, and lemon grass. So five nice. lemony herbs. And the first time I brewed it, I put in a sprig of each at flame out, and then I dry herbed with a sprig. And the first batch, I, it was really hard to find the lemony herbiness. So I tripled it in the second batch. So this is the second batch with, with sort of triple the amount. I think maybe it's a little over the top. I might dial it back, you know, a shade. But yeah, I mean, on the nose, you pick it up, and I think you taste it. It's definitely there. And the thing I like about it is it's in a lemon direction, but it's not lemons, but it's lemony. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I stopped by your house on Labor Day for the neighborhood mini golf uh, beer tasting. I do remember that. Uh, even though I didn't get there till the afternoon. And at that point in time, when the beer was maybe a couple of weeks old, I thought maybe in the aftertaste, the lemon lingered a bit longer than it might. But I think that's gone now, actually, a couple hmm. more weeks down the road, to my t palate anyway. Well, it's, it's good to get the feedback that it's not over the top because I was sort of, sort of worried about it. And I do sort of think, you know, after a glass, would you want another? Is it too much compared to the first time when it was real mild? It's my oh. fault uh, that first time. You, you asked me and I said, just know that if you're drinking it real fresh, sometimes the herbs are a little over the top until they get a little age on them. Sure. In your first batch, you were wanting to drink like right away, right? I want to drink every batch right away. Right. So, it, it, yeah, I take a little bit of blame for you dialing it back on the first one. I got the Saison recipe from you, Hans, the Saison master. Uh, I said, I want to make it Saison. Uh, what are you doing? You're like, well, 10 pounds Pilsner, 2 pounds wheat. So off I went. That's it. And, uh, yeah, you cautioned me against over-herbing. And then I sort of threw that to the wind with the second batch. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's not bad. I might, might dial back a hair, but I think the idea of all the lemony herbs I think that's been a big success. I would add this to the rotation. This is a beer I'm happy to have on, and everyone seems to enjoy it uh, for something a little bit different. From a home brewer's perspective, the thing I like about both of the beers we've just had is you're developing these beers, right? You've brewed them, you've tasted them, you drank them all, and you're going to brew it again. And you have ideas, right, based on experience then. And I think that's the way you dial in 
it's fun just to experiment. So there's some element in homebrewing where, oh, I want to get in homebrewing just because I can experiment and do things that somebody else isn't doing. So there's that element of it. But there's a really satisfying thing about picking a style you like, brewing it, and then trying to figure out, oh, how do I tweak either the recipe or the process to make a beer I like even more? Whether that's a beer that's even more to style or a beer that's even more to my liking. For both of these beers, you know, these are second iterations where you said, okay, I did this. This was the result. What am I going to do next time? I've, I've bought a hundred plants in my, my crazy farm system. And so there's always room where I can, I can throw in more stuff and experiment a little bit. How many lemony herbs are there? And then what do they bring to the table in a beer? And is it still even lemony? Is it herbal yeah, or is it yeah. lemony or is it both or what? So that's been sort of interesting to try, definitely. Can you differentiate the lemon character in the different herbs? I mean, it's going to be pretty hard in the beer, but you smelled them and taste them before you put it in. How is a lemon different in lemon verbena versus lemon grass versus lemon thyme versus... I mean, I think it's a good question. I, I brought a little bouquet of uh, each of them with me. We, we can sort of go through them a little bit. I oh, think... Okay. The lemon balm, definitely lemony, but uh, pretty mild. The lemon verbena, I think, was the strongest and most lemony. Lemongrass, very lemony, but it, it has that lemongrass. You know, it takes you in like a Thai food direction. You think of foods you've had with lemongrass in them. Lemon thyme is probably the most herbally, uh, and probably the lemon basil too. You know what I mean? They're not straight lemon. So each one brings something a little bit different, which is sort of, it's interesting to see how they how they come together, I think. Yeah, the last two are a little bit more herbs first with tinged with lemon, whereas, you know, the others may be more lemon forward. You know, it's sort of like a sketch of a lemon, you know, and each one sort of paints in a different part of it. And it's not a lemon, but it's lemony. But I, I think it worked out well. As we're talking, an alternate name for the beer, even though it's one of the herbs, it could be, it's lemon time. Uh, it's lemon time. Uh, <laughs> now, did you use hops in this beer? I did. Lemon drop hops, obviously, right? Apropos. Uh, two ounces, an ounce at about 15 minutes to go, and an ounce at flame out. So really trying to avoid the bitterness. I was surprised uh, when I first found them. Uh, really low alpha acid hops. I sort of thought all brand new hops had to be wicked huge alpha bombs. These ones, not so much, like 4% or something. So not not ridiculous, but I thought they'll add a lemon component, if anything. So take the theme and run with it. This time, it's a French Saison yeast first time I use one of the other Saison yeasts. I think both White Labs. Yeah, say, I use Saison 2 ale yeast the first time. This is a French Saison yeast. So Saison yeast based on what, what was available when I was ready to brew. I love the French Saison yeast. It was a great choice. It's really good. Thanks. Happy to share it with you guys. You know, last fall we did a Saison episode, uh, Hans and Mark and I, and I do remember talking about both lemon verbena and I think lemongrass. But we were drinking Jackie O's Pockets of Sunlight, and that one has lemon verbena in it. And oh, is that so, right? Okay. Yeah. And that's a mixed fermentation Saison, right? Yep. Absolutely. So, and that might segue us into a next beer we might taste. Mm. Hans, did you bring something to the party? Only this year did I tiptoe into doing any mixed fermentation uh, at all. 
And that was with a couple mixed fermentation saisons. And one I brought for us to taste is called Yoshimi's Vitamin. Ooh. <laughs> and we're going to pour and taste that next, I think. Awesome. All right. Effervescent. Historically, I've mostly just brewed saisons. And this year, I was inspired to do some of the things that the slightly undefined style allows. There's lots of variability in the style of saisons. It's not entirely defined like, um, well, like Hefeweizen, for instance. And so this saison is Yoshimi's Vitamin. All I will say is that it's a mixed fermentation saison, and then I'm curious for you guys to experience it and see what you think about it. Oh, well, man. I get some of that Brett aroma right off the top, where it is kind of vitamin-y, actually. The Bayer children's aspirin that we would know from our generation. And what other attributes do Bayer children's aspirin have? A citrusy element, which is very much there. Are they orange? They're kind of like a pale orange. I don't know. Do they even sell those now? I haven't eaten baby aspirins for a long time. I have a, a friend who reacts to orange flavor by saying, baby aspirin, baby aspirin, baby aspirin. It's, I could see that. So I, I don't have direct experience, but my understanding is they were they were artificially orange flavored or there's an association there. Yeah. I like the way he says it three times to like when you're summoning Beetlejuice. I don't know if that makes <laughs> And I, I now have a baby aspirin in my hand, so it's got to work. It works. Oh, sure. It's it, nice. It's very light. There still is something there. I'll say that like for being as light and dry as it seems, there is still a bit of weight to it, but it is decidedly very dry. Not any alcohol evident to me, but I have had a couple beers today. I like the fact that we're on our third beer. This is the strongest one yet, and we're only up to 5%. Yeah, that's great. Mm -hmm. The head, at least in my glass, looking around, it looks like most glasses. There's not a lot of head at least retained. And the color of the beer, maybe it's the power of suggestion, but the, the color is quite orange as well. I think there's some connection between beers that have Brettanomyces and head retention. There's often less head retention, in my opinion, with mixed fermentation beers. How long has this been in the bottle, Hans? So this has been in the bottle for at least three months. The concept for this uh, mixed fermentation was that this be light and delicate and complex and a little funky. Those were the goals of this beer. You guys can decide if it meets those criteria and if that's enjoyable or not. Well, that's often how I describe you, Hans, so I think it's appropriate. Nailed it. I would say mission accomplished. Well, there's, there's some funk, but that, that Brett character of that sweet, tarty, uh, kind mm -hmm. of candy flavor, it, my sense is it's not maybe fully developed, but it's, it's starting that direction, which I think is interesting. Yeah, it would be great to hang on to some bottles of these for a few years and see where it goes. Three is a magic number on that as well. To achieve some of the flavor profile and aroma profile goals of this, just like Chris mentioned, he wanted to get lemon into a beer without adding lemon. That's what Chris said previously. So there are actually a lot of contributing factors to any of the subtle fruit notes you're, you're getting from this, and none of them are fruit in this case. 
it's got both uh, cashmere and lemon drop hops. So we understand lemon drop. Cashmere can give you some lemon, some lime, maybe even some melon, I think, can come out of that. Additional to that, though, the bug, the extra bug, there are several strains of Brettanomyces. And in this case, it's the Clozony. Sometimes this bug can result in a little pineapple. And to me, what I get, it's like grilled pineapple. Then you've got the interesting omega gulo ale yeast was used for this, actually. Oh, tell me about that one. I believe it's one of their Franken yeasts um, that has been developed. But this particular one can add an orange marmalade and peach kind of character, which I think is some of what Mark was picking up on in the nose kind of immediately actually coming from the yeast in this instance. And also has a very clean, what they would call brute-like, B-R-U-T, finish. And I think you get that. It's dry, it's effervescent, and a little clean on the finish. So all of these fruit characters come from some interesting and different places in, in the specific beer. But because this beer, yeah, it's a Saison, but it had some Asian influence, I wanted this to be light and subtle and complex. So in this case, there was a fair amount of rice used as the fuel in the grain bill. Um, so that leans out the middle, which is consistent with the style of Saison, having a very lean middle. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in a Saison that comes from sugar, but in this case... What form was this rice? Was uh, this flaked, flaked rice? Flaked, mm-hmm. yep. Three, so three pounds of the total five-gallon grain bill was flaked rice. Hmm. Additionally... After the boil and going into primary fermentation, there was some green tea and some genmaicha tea. And so genmaicha is a green tea, but that has toasted rice in it that was added in there. Mark, you said when you tasted it that it still had some body. There was still something in the middle. And so there's this balance, like when you lean out the middle, like either with rice or you do it with sugar, you run the risk of it becoming watery, like they're having no middle body to it at all. So I tried to balance that a little bit. I added some honey malts. Uh, there were a couple pounds of honey malt and some torrified wheat. And that honey malt has that melanoidin. Pat, you and I were talking about melanoidin recently. That gives an extra kind of body that other grain options don't. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here because I think this is a really elegant beer and you've you've done a whole bunch of things that are sort of outside of the normal way one approaches a beer. The first thing I would like to say is it reminds me in concept of a beer that the brewery, the Orange County quite venerable brewery. You've been there too, right? I have been to there, and it's it's a great place to visit, by the way. I haven't had it in many years, but they make or made a triple that they called Trade Winds, and it was an Asian-inspired triple. And what they did is they used rice to give it that kind of rice character, and they used Thai basil. You know, the rice thing is kind of in that vein. And then to use a tea. So there's sure. a stringency and bitterness to green tea. And both of the kinds of tea I added are in that category. That I think that's giving you some of the punctuation at the end of the sentence when you swallow this beer instead of the hops. Okay. I didn't add tea to the boil. I didn't add tea at the flame out. What I did was literally make strong pots of tea that had a certain taste profile, and added them to the primary fermentation at the same time the cold wort was added. Okay. What volume of tea? 
it was uh, strong brewed versions of those two kinds of tea that I added, and it was a couple pots uh, of each. It was in that that range. But you kind of have to taste your way through it when you're adding ingredients that don't have numbers associated sure. to, with them, yeah. like IBUs. And so you taste a thing, and you look at its volume, and you think of the total volume of five gallons, and think, what is this going to contribute? That's not a perfect process, and this is the first time I've brewed this thing, but this is the result. Well, I think it's a stunning beer in a lot of ways, really. Well, I like the idea of making a fruit beer with no fruit. I mean, very relatable, right? My lemon beer with no lemons, you made a fruit beer with no fruits. You sort of combine the yeast that would get you part of the way there, the hops that would get you part of the way there. I'm really kind of struck by the color, how orange the beer is. That's really interesting. And the tea, now that you mention it, I'm I'm finding it there as like, yeah, that was there. I couldn't identify it before. But now that you say tea, I, I think, yeah, there's that note. I like the carbonation. It, you, you can sort of feel it. You don't see it in the head. When I look at a beer and I don't see head, I think, oh, is it flat? But it's not flat. You know, you sort of sip it and you sort of mull it for a little while because there's there's a lot of different things going on there. And I feel like as it warms up, you get a little more of that fruit. For those who haven't already finished their second glass. <laughs> Sorry. I can open another bottle. Just say, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you liked it enough to finish it. That's great. At what point did you add the Brett? Yeah. So I let primary fermentation go for two weeks. Okay. And then I pitched the Brett. I pitched the Brett uh, straight out of the package. If I remember right, this was the one, the Brett smelled awful. Like straight out of the package. Like it was unpleasant coming out of, out of the package. But it did nice things in uh, fermentation. Am I correct in saying there is a food course to go with the next beer? It sounds awesome. I know we haven't had much food with our beers. It's just been a beer-to-beer pairing and... To quote Hans, I'm getting a little buzzed here. <laughs> yeah, let's let's have some food. Sometimes you might see people interested in pairing beer or wine with specific foods. And beer to guard, often you might read, oh, ripe soft cheese. So we got a double cream brie made with goat's milk. What we put on top of that, almonds, dried cranberries, pumpkin seeds, and some of my own honey. And we put that in the oven and let it get really warm. And then we cut into it. It's just oozing all over the place. And we're eating it with some crackers. Does anybody here have any memory of a beer to guard they've ever had in their life and what it was like? Because it's a fairly obscure style that isn't widely available. Dan Schaefer made a very nice one last year for Christmas. The only brewer I know that brews as much at home as he does commercially. Nice. I was fortunate enough to have some of that, and it was a very good beer. I mean, doesn't Edison have one right now? That's true. There is a beer to guard at Edison right now. Yeah. Many years past, I think Seven Sun made a beer to guard. But I'll tell you what I've never had. That would be a beer to guard from France. Here's the weird thing. As a homebrewer, I think a lot of people might be inspired to homebrew because they've tasted a specific style of beer, and they think, Oh, I like this style. I want to try to brew homebrew in the style of that beer. And so for me, Cezanne is in that category. For this beer to guard, that wasn't the inspiration. I have personally never had a French beer to guard and then tasted it and thought, oh, this is exactly as I've seen them described and I want to try to emulate that. 
Bearded Guard is kind of like a close cousin to Saison. So the interesting thing about Bearded Guards, though, is that they come in three flavors. You might have a light or blonde. You might have an amber, and you might have a brown, a brune. All those three colors are acceptable within the style. Now, this beer is a rich copper color, I would say, mahogany, maybe some reddish highlights to it. Which category would that fall in? Would that be amber or brune? This particular one, I think, fits in the amber and just on the cusp of the brune. And the differences between the styles aren't just the the color, but the lightest of them um, might be more hop dominant, and the darker of them are more malt dominant. And that's how it's described within the style. This beer has German Dark Munich, Belgian Vienna malt, German pear wheat malt, Bryce Caramel malt, some honey malt. Mostly it's Franco-Belgian Pilsner malt, but then also a little rolled oats, which contributes to the mouthfeel and that big head you were appreciating. But then also, as in this part of the world, it had some Belgian candy sugar. And that's what would boost the ABV up to 6.5%. But the thing that always inspired me about this style that I never found in iterations I tasted was there was always this description of, oh, it's got this musty, cellared quality that no other beer has. And if you read about it, it'll say, oh, homebrew versions of this will never have that, but some commercial versions accomplish this. Some like to say this comes from the fact that these beers are always corked And the cork is contributing to this, which never made sense to me because when you cork these, they don't bottle condition on their size. They bottle condition standing up. And so the notion that the cork is in contact with the beer and contributing some flavor character always seemed dubious to me. I mean, it's not like Beer to Guard is the only cork to beer, right? For sure. That said, for this particular beer, when I bottle conditioned it, I laid them all on their sides. So these bottle conditioned on their sides so they were in contact with the cork. Okay. I will not make any assertion that that added to either the flavor or the aroma of the beer, however. So what are you going to get? You're going to get, I hope, and we're going to find out because you guys are tasting it now and eating some cheese while you're doing it, some malty sweetness and some toasty character and some caramelization you might find in there. But you're also going to get some other undefinable thing. And I won't tell you the things I did to this beer yet that might contribute to that, because I'm interested in your experience of it. Well, it definitely has a slight amount of animal nose to it. There is some caramel there. I wouldn't define it as like a caramel-like sweetness. But there is a note of caramel to it to me. However, it's quite dry. But yeah, there's something animal to it, I will have to say. I was just going to say, what what do you mean by animal? Animal, barnyard, uh, wet straw, horse blanket. That dog. I have a dog. And he comes in from the rain. I love it that so far this evening, Mark has compared my beers to baby aspirin and dog. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. well done. <laughs> I, I, I feel dog. accomplished. <laughs> I really love about this beer how on the front end, it gives you a pretty rich kind of maltiness. But in the finish, it just dries out. It's nowhere near cloying. I could just drink it and drink it and drink it. I'm a sucker for the cheese. I went straight for the cheese. So now it's, you know, how do I taste the beer without the cheese? Some good cheese right there. I've always thought that the association between Beer to Guard and Saison is a little bit weird. I know they're both farmhouse sales. Markowski wrote this book about them, and he talked about them in length. I know they come from the same geographic region, 
But, you know, uh, Cezanne has phenols and esters and a lot of things that are not in a beer de garde. I mean, a beer de garde, to me, is like a more refined version of a, a Mertzen or a Dunkel or something like yes. that. Yes. Yeah. I actually, I agree with that. Because this is a cellared beer, like beer de garde, technically, it's still an ale process, but kind of has a lagered mm. air to it. And so what I picked for this was, again, an Omega yeast. It was the Lutra. So it's a Kvike, mm. um strain that they've identified that can give you lagered characteristics even under ale temperatures. But also this particular one doesn't give you the phenols and other things that shouldn't be in this style even at those temperatures. Right. And so it's a mock lager kind of yeast at ale temperatures that was supposed to um, disappear into the background and the yeast itself not be the thing that contributes to the aroma or the flavors, letting the malt bill and the other ingredients I haven't described to you yet maybe pull their own weight. It does kind of remind me of like a unibrew, like Maudit, that French, if not French, French Canadian at least, a nice sort of aged cellared vibe here. I wonder if that's the cork or where that's coming from. It's interesting. Some of the cellared quality, like other adjectives that might be used are earthy or mushroom-like. So there's something, right? And I think I'm hearing you guys are picking up on some of that either in the aroma or in the taste. The puzzle that inspired me to even try the beer was how to get the qualities that I've read this beer might have into a beer that no one's willing to say, oh, it gets there from this process exactly. Before you reveal, the big reveal, are we going to take a minute and try to guess oh. Guess the adjuncts, guess the secret ingredients? You've been sort of dancing around and alluding to it. You're welcome. Sure, of course. But well, first, maybe does. describe uh, what you perceive. Like, w- without trying to identify the origin, is there something that fits anywhere in that category of description that you're actually smelling or tasting? I think it's interesting you bring up mushroom. I think of sort of cellar, basement, my crawl space where I keep my beer at a constant temperature. I'm having an association with that, and I don't know why. Uh, I assume you probably put some black mold in there, some old, uh, <laughs> some old uh, fiberglass insulation, maybe, uh, maybe some water damage, wood timbers, um, maybe something along that direction. I don't know if anyone else has a better guess than that. What else you guys got? I think being in the world of fungi, it might be the right direction. I mean, Hans did say mushrooms. I know Hans pretty well to know. There's no way he put mushrooms in this. There's no way. Ah, okay. There's no way. Hans hates nothing more than the mushroom. So the first thing to say is none of that is in this beer because of an additional bug. What I decided to do on this beer, and it's actually similar to the previous beer we tasted. So there's a kind of Chinese tea called pu'er. And pu'er is a fermented tea. Like many teas are actually fermented, but pu'er has a very earthy quality to it it's been flash dried to kill microbials but then the microbials are still there and then it's been pressed under pressure into a cake and so when you buy poo air tea it's often in a compressed little puck and it's called poo air it's called poo air p-u i think e-h-r okay because the way i was spelling my head was giving me different associations you i was seeing a whoopee cushion you, in the you back were, of the you guys were going, yeah, that's a nice way to say you it. guys were going winnie the poo so poo air tea is a very famous tea. Um, people will pay an enormous amount of money for pu'er tea that's been aged for 10, 20, 30 years. Like, it's a thing. 
So I was inspired by that tea and having had it before that it might add some of this mysterious, otherwise undefined quality. That's part of what's giving you the experience uh, you might get if you're getting any of that. And it sounds like you are um, from smelling and drinking this. But there's a second thing. Elderflower. Elderflower has a really specific weird taste and aroma if you make a tea out of it. And frankly, that's where the name of this beer comes from. So this is a Millie Fleur. And Millie Fleur is... Million flowers? It's million flowers. Oh, a thousand flowers. Thank you, because <laughs> we, we need that help. Um, so there's a breed of chicken, and it's a Belgian breed of chicken. They're a bantam chicken, which means they're small. And I used to have a flock of these chickens. They're beautiful. Um, and they're called Millie Fleurs because they're speckled. They have little white speckles all across them, like a million flowers or a thousand flowers. And so this breed of chicken comes from the exact region we're talking about, which is the French side of Belgium and the Belgium side of France. Like that's where this breed of chicken comes from. So these elderflowers plus this pu'er tea, it's approximating this cellared quality that I don't actually believe comes from being cellared. This would go down pretty well in Lille. Kudos. Pretty good. I like it. What's this last beer we're drinking today? We're going to finish with one of my creations. This beer is called Reach for the Sky. Love it. It's after a Gary Moore song. It is a wet hop pale ale. Well, Gary Moore, may he rest in peace. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. This cheers. Is, cheers. Uh, this is off the Run for Cover album, am I right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. It came out around 83, 84, probably. Yeah. That was a pretty good record. It got a little keyboardy there for a moment in some of the songs. I like the way this beer looks. Look at the lacy, beautiful foam at the top of that glass. Yeah, it's a good look, isn't it? Uh, and the first wet hop beer I ever did was actually over at Chris's house. I don't know. You remember that, Chris? I remember picking hops off of hop vines for sure. That's right. hop picker. You know, you start the boil, and then that's when you go cut down the hops, so it doesn't get any fresher than that. That's right. That's a little bit like throwing the live lobster into the pot, isn't it? You pick that hop off the vine, and it goes straight into the pot. It is kind of like that, Yeah. now that you mention it. So what was your design for this beer? It's not the first time I've made a beer with my hops, and I've generally been kind of disappointed I don't feel like I get that real kind of hop character. Even when you go to commercial wet hop beers, you know, hops have different character. I mean, hop can give you fruitiness. It can give you spiciness. It can give you vegetal, vegetal, all of these things. So I, I can't speak for the whole world, but I mean, I don't really don't want a beer that's like 11 on vegetal and dank. What you might not know, but I'll add as a chemist is like the fruity flavors mostly come from oxygenated compounds. Compounds have been a little bit oxidized. And so with really fresh hops, you don't get a ton of fruitiness. So what I did with this beer is I tried to compensate for that with yeast. And I used another one of these. We've been talking about Omega yeast all day. I wonder if they would like to sponsor this podcast. Seriously, that's random though. Like DMs are open. Yeah, we, we do have a spot for sponsors because currently we make absolutely no money and we have no sponsors. But this yeast, it's called sundew, and it's based on the uh, Schuf yeast, right? So this is a Belgian yeast. type. Yeah. And <laughs> which throws off a lot of esters and a lot of spicy phenols. And what they did is they went in and they took out the DNA part that makes the phenols from the yeast, and so it 
it's supposed to only give you the fruity esters and not the phenols. Yeah, we've had some Franken yeast kind of examples yeah. today, randomly, like not on purpose. That's just how well, it's rolled. Yeah, that's that's the way the world is, I guess. You know, I don't know. What do you guys think about how it's tasting, Clean smelling, finish on this, which I really like. Also, you've got the temperature cranked down on your kegs. Your, your beers today have been nicely chilled. It definitely has a Belgian character, though, in the nose. Uh, yeah, I can tell the yeast contribution. It's nice. Very pale. Super pale. It's almost all Rustic Brew Farms pale ale in this one. Mm-hmm. The malt bill is all just pale ale. There's a small amount of wheat. That's what was, the head retention yeah. tells me a little wheat. That's I, I think I used that's maybe why I a half, half pound of wheat. Yeah. 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 Because I, it's got a beautiful white head on it with a little bit of lacing on the glass. Uh, I oftentimes will add just a little bit of a light Munich because that gives a kind of a maltiness to it. You know, having said that, it could be hoppier. I'm just going to say, even though I use two and a half I think pounds it's of hop. very drinkable, though. Like, this, this goes down easy. I think that's a misconception with wet hop ales. Surprisingly, the more processing gives you a lot more of the fruity, more aromatic flavors. And when there's less, you get so much more of the vegetal that it takes up a lot of the pot. I actually think, you know, when you're going from whole cone hop to cryo, you're just stripping away all that vegetal and getting right to the lupulin, Mm -hmm. whereas I've never noted any fresh hop beers to be perceivedly, oh my gosh, this (laughs) is the best showcase of hops ever. But harvest sales are nice. I I think it's wonderful. Also, I, I think this has more residual body to it than, say, the heifer uh, we started with today. A mm-hmm. little bit. And then, you know, ironic or not, Pat, isn't it cool, though, to take something straight off of the plant and put it in the boil just straight away? So we've had a few I examples cool. of that today, right? Yeah. Like, as Absolutely. a home brewer, that's a cool thing you get to do. Mm-hmm. And Chris, with all the herbs. I don't get a lot of hops on the nose, but there's the flavor is just really... I think we can tell that your hops produced more this year than last year mm. based on this beer. Which there were a lot went into this. I was here. Oh, yeah. It was like took up half the pot basically just to dump the hops in. Yeah. So it's like a big sponge, though, when you throw all those fresh hops into your kettle, right? You're not like squeezing that out. You're not <laughs> wringing out your wart from that when you throw that in. So did that affect your final volume? Well, a little bit, I suppose. But the other thing you have to remember is that they're wet hops. So the hops themselves have moisture. They're saturated with moisture. So, you know, it came pretty close to what the calculation said I should get. So I I got five gallons, which is about what I was shooting for. Right on. Yeah, well done. Chris, you were saying about there's more in the taste than the aroma. And that's probably because there's no dry hopping here. Packaged pelletized hops, one ounce for the bittering. And the rest of the, they just want to like whirlpool, like uh, after flame out? Uh, six ounces in at with 10 minutes to go, and then I put two pounds in at flame out. Mostly Cascade, but I have started growing some Chinook, which mm. I'm pretty excited about. And I will have to say the Chinook smelled better going in, and mm. so much so that actually I pulled out, I have two rhizomes of the Cascades, and I actually pulled one out because I, I want more Chinook and Centennial. Oh, once you get them in the ground, they just go nuts. Yeah, I have I have <laughs> grow hops in my backyard, and they're under the back fence, and I'm not, I haven't met my neighbor who lives behind me, but I apologize, but enjoy all the hops that you're now growing because they go wild. I should say that we have, for the first time ever, a studio audience of two. Um, oh, and yeah. So- <laughs> 
Ted and Caroline came over um, to sample some of these home brews. And so, I don't know, look for tickets for future episodes. <laughs> Very well. So, Hans and Chris, thanks so much for joining this month. Happy to do it, man. Sorry Good we day. had to take a few months off. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.